0: Welcome to The Innovative Mindset with your host, Harrison Kelly. The Innovative Mindset was created to give easy access to people with innovative stories and livelihoods that can teach valuable lessons to everybody. Thank you for joining us on Episode 9 of The Innovative Mindset. Today on the podcast, we have General Robert Spaulding. Robert Spaulding is a retired United States Air Force Brigadier General. He earned a bachelor's degree and master's in agricultural business from Fresno State, followed by a Ph.D. in economics and mathematics from the University of Missouri, and was promoted to brigadier general in November 2016. Since then, he has published the book Stealth War, How China Took Over While America's Elite Slept. Please enjoy this episode of The Innovative Mindset with Harrison Kelly and Robert Spalding.
1: what's going on ladies and gentlemen happy to bring you another episode of the podcast today on the innovative mindset we have a very special guest dr robert spaulding how are you doing rob great great to be here i gotta tell you you know it's a good sign that you have a good podcast guest when you have to choose between calling you a doctor or a general so <laughs> very excited to have you this means on. i'm old <laughs> uh, i could uh as i was just saying before we hopped on there's quite a list of credentials here, so I won't go through the full list, but just to give listeners unfamiliar with General Spalding's uh, accomplishments, he has a PhD in economics and mathematics at the University of Missouri. He recently published a book called Stealth War, How China Took Over While America's Elite Slept. Very fascinating read. Uh, currently a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, as you can see here behind him <laughs> in the background, and... He is also a chief architect of Trump's national security strategy, in addition to being a general in the U.S. Air Force. So that's just the fact that that's only some of your accomplishments speaks volumes to <laughs> to begin with. So uh, that being said, if, if you're ready to get right into things, uh, you consistently through your military leadership, foreign policy and national security policy strategies and other leadership roles, have been able to provide an innovative approach to tech and global trends. The question that I would have for you is, how have you been able to so consistently innovate and move forward despite the the geopolitical landscape and innovation in general rapidly advancing?
2: Well, I mean, I think part of my problem as a person is that um, I, I have a very hard time um, doing, thing without, doing things without understanding why I'm doing them. And uh, this is just part of my personality. And so I have this incessant um, need to ask why. And, um, and even for some of the, you would think some of the most mundane things. In fact, I remember when I was a young captain in the Air Force and uh, I went in to to see the director of operations who was a lieutenant colonel. And, and I think he'd had enough of my asking why. He said, Spalding, just don't ask why. <laughs> but you have to, you have to, I think you have to, um, first of all, know why you exist. What's the purpose of your organization? What's the purpose, you know, that you fulfill in that organization and, um, and which of the things that you're doing actually helps better the organization and, and certainly yourself. And so, um, you know, because if you're doing things that aren't uh, bettering the organization or aren't bettering, um, yourself, then why are you doing them? You know, what, what purpose do they, do they fulfill? Because, um, as you know, uh, we have so many things to do as people every single day that there's no way that you can ever get them all done. And this is, by the way, this, this, this locks people down, this, this constrains them, this makes them, you know, ineffective because, you know, they'll get to the end of the day and I've got, well, 50 things uh, 50 things left to do. And many times it has them there 15, 16 hours a day. And I saw this time and time again. But then you have to take a step back and say, you know, did I prioritize well? Did I do the things that were important to my organization? And did I do a bunch of things that, quite frankly, nobody cares about? And, and often uh, you find this in organizations that people are doing things and they don't know why they're doing them. And I would ask, why are you doing that? I don't know. Well, who cares that you're doing that? Uh, I also don't know that. Well, if you don't know why you're doing something and you don't know who cares about it, then, you know, it's one of those things where you ask, why am I doing it? And and to the same, uh, you know, aspect of innovation, you know, I remember um, sitting uh, at an ops desk uh, at Whiteman Air Force Base, you know, launching B2s. And I'm sitting there and I have um, I have two radios. I have a, a, a land mobile radio, which is like a, a handheld. And then there's a big radio that's a, that's a UHF radio that we use to communicate on the plane. And I look at the two radios and I have things to do, but I'm stuck at the desk because this big radio I can't take anywhere because it's plugged in. And I say, hmm, I wonder if I could put these two things together because this one I can walk around with, that one I have to, I can't. And, you know, that process of discovery, asking that question, can I can I because I, I had stuff to do and I was stuck at the desk, you know, led me 18 months later to having a system in place that allowed us to walk around with this radio and talk through that other radio because we had we had put that in place. Now, that's innovation. That's that's basically coming up with a solution to a problem you have but the problem with why innovation doesn't happen in government typically is because things take so long. The, the, the answer to the question, can I put these two things together from a technical perspective was completely straightforward. From a bureaucratic and organizational straight, uh, you know, standpoint, I can tell you a story um, that will blow your mind, but suffice it to say that, that something that should have taken a few days took 18 months to get done. Um, And most people just, you know, run out of patience. They're like, why am I, I'm beating, I'm constantly beating my head against the wall. I just want to make things better. I think this would be important. Everybody agreed once it was done, it was phenomenal because nobody was stuck tied to the desk anymore. So they could get things done, but yet still have the ability to communicate. This is a lot of, you know, what's going on in our, um, in our mobile phone lives today, particularly with coronavirus, because you're, talking and communicating uh, and we're collaborative now because of mobile networks. But, you know, this is a problem of government in in innovation. It nothing, uh, you know, things that are technically straightforward are organizationally bureaucratically, um, you know, almost impossible to do. Sometimes there's politics involved. Sometimes there's just uh, layers of bureaucracy where um, people are more conditioned to say no, because if you say yes, then that may, may mean that you have to do more work. And so, you know, there's a lot of things that go into innovation in government, but most, I think the most important, two most important things is, is one, be willing to ask why, and two, be willing to be persistent. You won't stop, you won't give up, you're tenacious. Uh, we need people like that in government. No doubt about it, and I
1: mean, even for me, I, I'm a digital marketer, so I work I work with a, an array of different types of businesses. And some of them are very straightforward. It's like I make a proposal for a change and it's their head of marketing approves it. And next thing you know, like it's implemented on the website and that's that. But other ones, it's got to go through legal. It has to go through this. So uh, tying into that persistency, I think government is the prime example of <laughs> slow moving progress. Do you have any advice for someone who might be inside of like a a bureaucratic business environment that wants to innovate?
2: Yeah. I mean, first of all, you have to own it, right? You can't, you can't walk into the job and say, you know, this is just a job. It's the government. You know, um, I'll, I'll give you an example. You know, as I was driving into um, Whiteman Air Force Base one day, there was one of our American flags just lying on the ground. It had fallen down on one of the flagpole and You know, as I was coming in, you know, 20, 30, 40 cars drove by that flag sitting on the ground. And, you know, I stopped and and put it up, you know, and and that really you have to take ownership. Even if even if something is not your job, if you see something that needs to be done, you know, take take the chance, take the opportunity to fix it and, and, and move on. So own it. The other thing to recognize is that there are you know, a thousand, 10,000, a million ways to skin a cat. And one of, the, one of the problems that we get into is that when you have a very tough problem that you're trying to solve, we tend to think that there's only one way to do it. And, and then we run into a roadblock. Uh, and then we just say, well, this person said no, or for whatever reason, we can't do this um then you know that means the end of that let's go on to the next thing and and a lot of times you have people that that pick up projects or do things and they'll have 10 15 projects that never get done because they run into a roadblock and the first time they do they just quit you know if it's important enough for you to do then it's important enough for you to discover other ways to um to get it done and so recognizing that there's more than one ways to skin a cat And that to really be successful in government, you have to build a coalition of like minded people, people that, you know, see the need for um, that you see that needs to get done and that are willing to work with you uh, to enable it. And and again, it's just being persistent and um, and asking why, but also being able to recognize that there's going to have to be more than one way that, that you actually get this done that that note about aligning with other people that share your values.
1: That's such a great rule of thumb. It, it ties back into that classic uh, classic quote that you are the, the five people that you surround yourself with. So if you surround yourself by people that are easily going to give up when they hit a roadblock, chances are you're not going to find that success that you're hoping to strive for. So that's so important across the board. Great pieces of advice. Really appreciate it. I would love to quickly move over to some of the stuff that you address in your book regarding American-Chinese relations and just the Chinese's prosperity and growth, or I guess the Chinese (laughs) Communist Party's prosperity, I should say. Uh, It's pretty astonishing looking at the numbers, how quickly the Chinese have been able to rise in power over the last 50 years based on where their economy was previously at. I would like to ask, what do you think are several of the key components that have led to their
2: absolute success and making them such a dominant global force? Well, I mean, there's two things that that I think really stand out for me. You know, um, you know, under Mao, um, they were they were a backwater. They were a backward society. Um, you know, they economically they they tried to dictate what everybody did. You know, they had communes. I mean, they literally tried just about everything under the sun. But when Xiaoping, when Mao died and Deng Xiaoping came to power, I think one of the things that he that he did that was so elemental in uh, in their Uh, growth as a power was to unlock uh, individual initiative and to tie that very tightly to the Chinese Communist Party. And so the way he did that was to say, okay, you can get wealthy, but you have to get wealthy in the way that that really, um, you know, promotes our interests. And so um, when they did that, allowed people to get wealthy, they um, they took to it as as humans do. They um, there's two things that motivated us, greed and fear and in this case it was greed and and he tapped into it but not only greed uh you know with regard to chinese people but greed from you know people everywhere so our corporate uh, leaders our financial leaders our political leaders are also motivated by greed and and the chinese communist party figured that out and really utilized this to its fullest so it's really just unlocking individual initiative that that is aligned with your with your organization's interests that's that's really the power of the chinese communist party the other thing and this is a key thing for business is to unlock the power of capital capital is what drives business investment uh loans these are the things that make businesses grow so how did the how did the Chinese Communist Party do this? They unlocked individual initiative. And because they held all the purse strings, they were able to pick winners and losers based on, you know, kind of domestic competition. Okay, so we have three Chinese companies. They're duking it out in, in literally a, a, a blood fest. There is so, there's so much intense competition within China. It's absolutely uh, insane. The things that they will do to each other but you know ultimately one will rise to the top, and that's the one that um, that's the one that Chinese Communist Party will invest in and, and many times it, there there's also a relationship with the party that's involved, but it doesn't have to necessarily be so and I think that was the the key innovation of Deng Xiaoping. Look at India as an economy you know um, you know the unlocking capital is is a problem for um, uh, uh, for Indian business and And um, and so, you know, that's really where I think so individual initiative tied to the tied to the uh, Chinese Communist Party's interests and then unlocking capital.
1: I find it rather fascinating that they they pretty much applied capitalistic principles to push a socialist agenda, very forward thinking approach to accomplishing this (laughs) this world domination kind of approach that that Xi has kind of taken and, and now is running with. I remember seeing a quote that he wants full domination by 2050. That's one of his major objectives. So
2: it's it's pretty- well, and, it, and, it, and it dominated the it dominated the globe because it so dominated the globe and sucked all the oxygen out of the room. So if you're a business in the United States and you're trying to grow and you need capital, um, ultimately what was happening is the capital is going to China because they they'd created this engine for it and, and then, you know, that they would turn back around and they would be the venture capital investors for these, uh, for these entrepreneurs because nobody else would invest in it. And so it's really that access to capital that has driven the other things. And the other things that a free society cooks off is innovation, technology and talent. So, so when you take the capital from a free society and you run it through a dictatorial regime, then they're able to take that capital and leverage it to get innovation, technology, and talent, which they also need. So, but capital is the first and most important, and and then that's of course aligned with this idea that uh, if you get wealthy, you have to do it in the ways that, that promote our interests.
1: It, it, most definitely, it's uh, it's very Orwellian their approach, and the fact that they have a hand in pretty much every business. It frequently has me thinking about just the the extensive amount of data that they have. On us, uh, Trump's Trump's recent move to to eliminate bite Dance from TikTok, despite what the the media may have said, I think it was a forward-thinking approach because of how much information that we can't even really fathom. The Chinese government is able to collect on us. Uh, would you mind touching a little bit on the problems that you see with with Chinese data collection on a global scale?
2: Well, the problem um, it stems from the very beginning of the internet. You know um arpanet which was a dod project to link mainframe computers um was was based on um all of that system was based on an open data model in other words it was very easy to aggregate because you had to you know essentially put all the files on a floppy disk in order to take it to another mainframe and so the 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 data model which was an open data model you know, was what we built the foundation of networking on, computing and networking. And so as ARPANET grew into the internet and as we moved from the wired internet to more of a mobile internet with the invention of the smart device and 4G networks, you just had an explosion of of data that could be collected about individual behavior that then drove the rise of Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google. And if you look at, um, you know, so if you go back to 2007, the iPhone comes out. I talk about this all the time. Top five in market cap were AT&T, General Electric, Microsoft, Exxon Mobile, and Shell. And then in 10 years later, you have the FANG. So we went from an industrial economy to an information economy. And, you know, now those companies represent 25% of the S&P 500. Um, so, what did, what did they do? What They took the data and they figured out how to look at you from a perspective of data using technology and then to um, identify how to influence you using the data that they collect about you. What the Chinese Communist Party figured out is, okay, Apple and Google are not going to get beat in this world. They dominate. Um, they are entrenched as leaders of the smartphone platform ios and android is what we're talking about so they realize okay we're not going to be able to do take that Um, so let's let's dominate the internet of things so rather than thinking about the smartphone let's dominate the smart city now the interesting thing about the the difference between the smartphone and the smart city is in the smartphone you know there's still people that have flip phone flip phones and don't sign up for cloud services Um, so it's a lot more difficult to track, you know, their, what they do, uh, in this 4G world and the, in the smart city world, everybody is tracked. So there's no opting out. You know, you can't say, I don't want to be tracked. The, the, the city will track you. And the whole purpose of the city tracking you is to take that data and turn it into a virtual button push rather than you opening an app on your phone. You just leave your, you don't have a phone. You uh, or you have some very you know light you know weight. Maybe it's a maybe it's a just an earpiece or something. But for the most part, you're untethered from the internet because the internet is built in the world around you. And so, rather than opening a, an app on a phone, you just say, "I want an Uber." Uh, of course, a camera picks up your face, does facial recognition, or if you you know this earpiece is connected, it does like Siri and sends you a car. Now that that whole process you know, all of that data that's being collected about you, about your location, about, you know, what you're doing, who you're with, all of that stuff is then available to the tech companies. And the tech companies then use that to further monetize it and and provide you better and better services. Of course, the Chinese Communist Party figured out that they could not only incentivize you or influence you to buy things and to be a uh, consumer, but they could also influence your um, political habits, your, you know, m- your media and, and cultural habits. So it really became an all, um, an all aspect uh, system for controlling behavior. And, and so they've implemented that in China with the social credit score and they're, prote- they're perfecting it now for a 5G world. The 4G world again is a smartphone world. The, the 5G world is a smart city world. They're perfecting that. So now, if you jaywalk in China, your your, your uh, picture of your face flashes up, so that everybody can ridicule you, and your social credit goes down. So if you do that too many times, you don't, you can't get on public transportation. So how did they? Um, you know, people don't aren't concerned about that because they think, oh, that's just going to be in China. No, they want to export that, and they want to export that via. The, the architecture of 5G, so the, the computing and the communication uh, architecture and framework for that system, much like Apple or iOS and Android is for the smartphone, they have designed that for the 5G world, for, for everybody. You know, All of these companies that are doing 5G come together in an industry standard making body called 3GPP. That body basically defines the, the framework and architecture of 5G. China controls that body. And so they control what the 5G design is. It doesn't matter who the manufacturer is. doesn't matter who uh, the telecom is. It's the same framework and architecture. And that's because they want access to the data. The reason they want access to the data is because they intend to do the same thing that Facebook, Amazon, and Netflix, and Google did, you know, as we went from an industrial economy to an information economy. They want to take Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent. So Baidu's like Google, Alibaba's like Amazon, Tencent's like Facebook, and become the dominant companies in the next 10 years of the smart city. So now when they have global economic information economy dominance, then they can also begin to have social and political influence over those societies and economies. That's what they're going for. They're trying to make sure that, you know, whatever decision that you make, that they have a hand in it both preparing you, influencing you, encouraging you, and ensuring that they profit from it. And then, if you de- if you make a decision that's counter to their interests, they can punish you. They can withhold services. They can ensure that you know they, you know y- your credit rating goes down or you know something of this matter. So they're essentially that's what they're doing in China, and they seek to export that uh, by dominating globally the information economy of the five G world. It's, it's a lot to process and pretty intense thing. It, it really ties in nicely to
1: another subject area that I have a lot of interest in exploring with you, the, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, their methodology of, it's similar to how they use capitalism to push a socialist agenda. It's very similarly, let's push a globalist agenda internationally to push secretly, or I guess not that secretly if you're paying attention Push their general nationalist agenda. Would you mind sharing a little bit about how they've been so successful in the Belt and Road Initiative, despite all of the controversial things that their
2: dictatorship has has been able to do with the CCP? Well, you know, let me contrast it with the way we do economic development. You know, the Chinese Communist Party will look for a resource in a developing economy, say, uh, you know, cobalt in the Democratic Republic of Congo, needed for lithium ion batteries. They'll they'll then develop the mine, uh, but then they've got to get it to China. So they'll develop the port, the rail, the roads, um, you know, telecommunications networks, the power, the water and um, and then they have the skeleton of a industrialized society. So, you know, what they bring start to bring in next is low value added manufacturing, you know, shoes and clothes and things that require a lot of labor. Well, of course, what happens after they industrialize? They need housing, so they build housing, uh, and many of these, uh, many of the people living in these housing are, are Chinese workers because they bring a lot of Chinese workers in. And then, and then, what comes in next? Well, what comes in next because they have built the telecommunications networks is this automated you know, city, this, this ability to track the the citizens through social media, through e-commerce, through um, facial recognition cameras, and understanding what the population is doing. And what they do is they hand all of that, the power of, for, for controlling that to the, the authoritarian leaders of the developing economy. So they go from essentially a dirt road backwater developing economy, that's an authoritarian system. And they, they bypass all of the, you know, the, where you get to middle class and they essentially start to agitate for their rights and go straight to uh, an IT based authoritarian system um you know within the space of a generation or two now um what we do in the united states is we'll you know have maybe do a water project here we we'll do a power project there there's no strategy it's not linked you know our, our businesses aren't involved at all there's really no investment that comes in at i mean it's just It is really, um, it's sad to see, because we did things uh, during the Cold War, uh, after World War II, like the Marshall Plan, where we rebuilt um, Europe. But, you know, so the difference, the main difference between now um, what China's doing and what we did, uh, for for instance, during the Marshall Plan, is that we helped Europe develop, you know, institutions that that promoted democracy and rule of law and self-determination, human rights, civil liberties what the chinese communist party develops are just the relationships with the leaders of these countries and they become they tend to become authoritarian, they tend to become secretive and they tend to uh, oppress their people. So the the belt and road initiative is an extension of of china's data collection and e e economy that they want to extend to these countries and essentially wrap into a kind of self uh, fulfilling, you know, economic sphere that really is a one-way um, profit for China. That on the, you know, so people understand that the Belt and Road Initiative. There's a lot of infrastructure, but what they don't realize is there's a lot of digital infrastructure, a lot of fiber that then 5G networks gets built on, and this ability to collect data becomes built into it. So it's really reinforced. And I think what what we can do much better is to begin to go out in, in these developing economies and help them develop their their economy, but also their civil society. And we can government working strategically and bringing in American business and other uh, businesses from democracies can begin to do some of the things that we were doing in the past. And I think, you know, that's, we, we will not survive as a democracy in a world where, you know, the rest of the world is authoritarian. So we have to go out in the world, we have to encourage and grow and help these other societies, you know, reach their potential. And that's part of, you know, the way that we protect ourselves. We've been thinking of security, of how we protect our democracy, just in terms of fighting wars. And that's really been, you know, the last 20 years, where we have both, you know, essentially encouraged the rise of China, but then fought, you know, incessantly in the Middle East against, um, you know, what I would call um, not uh, existential threats, but really more, um, you know, problems that are regional, that that because of globalization and the internet, they've found purchase, uh, to some extent, uh, in free societies, and so it's really getting back to you know helping those societies grow and, and grow in ways that are conducive to promoting democracy, where we're really going to, um, I think, uh, make a difference.
1: Undoubtedly, I think you've done a really great job of touching on kind of where the United States as a society needs to move, uh, and going from there, I'd like to take it to more of a micro level. How do you think American, American individuals, as well as, as lower scale American businesses, can learn from the rise of China? And what steps do you think that we should take moving forward as individuals?
2: Well, you know, um, there, there has to be this, this, this um, harmony between the private sector and government. You know, we've, we've tended to look at them uh, at the extreme as independent silos, and business does what they do, and government does what they do. Um, it is government's job to incentivize um, business to do to actually make a profit, because um, that is that is the way a free society is oriented in terms of uh, you know wealth creation and innovation. But they also have to make sure that it's done in such a way as to promote the the better welfare of the society. And I think that's where we got uh, kind of lost after the end of the Cold War, where we just said, you know, business, you go out and do what you want to do. Don't worry about, you know, um, you know, don't concern yourself with with who or where you do that. And, you know, in, in many ways, the Chinese took advantage of that by using their incentive system to bring those companies over. So we worked for many decades to create labor laws in this country, to create environmental laws in this country, to ensure that we had the type of you know rule set that would enable business to to um to grow and prosper in many ways sometimes it wasn't and that was out of whack but um but for the most part it was ways that could promote our people and you know promote the environment and then we said okay but you know that's not profitable our, our, our business people said you've you've so restricted us it's not profitable and now you're encouraging us to go to china which is where we're going to go and China had no labor laws and they had no environmental laws and these companies can make enormous profits. And so we've gotten into this kind of imbalance where we're now we're completely dependent on the Chinese Communist Party who is influencing us through those connections to be more like them. And so what we need to do is kind of you know, create space between us and the Chinese Communist Party. And the way we do that is by bringing this capital back to America. So rather than, as I said, using capital to help grow Chinese industry that then is used to come back and get our innovation technology and talent, we take that money and put it into communities. And so I'm really about promoting communities in America. These communities have been left behind. You know, when when China entered the WTO, we lost over 70,000 factories. And so, you know, I, I want to work with you know, community leaders that want to bring manufacturing back. And what do they need? Well, the thing that they need is number one, they need investment, but number two, they need um, the ability to automate their factories. And that's really about 5G. And so if we're going to bring 5G into these communities, it has to be secure. It has to be ensured that the data is kept private and and kept secure. And of course, the companies and individuals have control over it. So I think you know, from my standpoint, investing in our, in our economy, investing in our communities, re-industrializing um, America, because I believe we need to have some el- element of industrial capacity in our country, that will encourage you know, the growth of jobs. And then bringing in a secure 5G network is really you know, m- what I'm passionate about, because I think data is the most um, you know, precious resource of a society in the 21st century, because it can be used. To benefit the society, or can be used to harm the society, and and really how we uh, how we allow that data to be used is so critical to our uh, to the preservation of our republic. Undoubtedly, the the the
1: amount of information that can be learned from data is is astonishing, and and as it remains privatized, just thinking about the amount of knowledge that that companies like Amazon and others have, uh, it's it's pretty wild to think about. Uh,
2: you. But Amazon only has data on its platform. It doesn't have Google's data. It doesn't have Facebook's data. So think of the power of the Chinese Communist Party because it can take Facebook, Amazon, and Google and it all and be even more powerful. So think, so we can't do that in the United States. Our government can't do that. Our, uh, our, um, our technology companies can't do that. So we actually need an ability to kind of, you know, create privacy and security rules that allow us to aggregate data in a way that, that that enshrines the privacy and intellectual property of of those that are contributing data, but yet still get the macro effects. So you wanna be able to cure cancer, you wanna be able to cure Alzheimer's, you wanna be able to have more efficient transportation, you wanna be able to protect your society from influence or or nation state attacks of your uh, power grid. All of that requires is is that you're in the data, but you have to be in in a way that protects the individual character of that data, the intellectual property, the security, the privacy, all of these things. So when you think about it from a technology perspective, it's, um, you have to get down to that data model. And the data model that we are operating on today is not sufficient for that. What you need is a closed data model. You need a data model where each individual and organization has total control over their data via an encryption, and then they can sh- choose to uh, share with that who they want. And in this case, when you do that in a digital sense, when, if, so now I'm thinking about our constitution, if our forefathers had had an internet, they would have thought about, okay, how do I restore the balance between the power of the government and the power of the individual? And it's really via encryption. And so the government shouldn't have access to all your data. Uh, it should only have access to the data that you give it access to. And when you have a world like that, the relationship between the governed and the, and the government is based on trust. Because otherwise, if the government does things, um, you know, with your data that you do not agree with, then they'll not have access with, access to it because it's encrypted. And so in order to have access to your data, they have to build foundations of trust. You know, in a physical sense, it describes the society that America is because, because of our institutions and rule of law, you know, we have a society based on trust. And if you break that trust, then there's avenues for you to go through to you know essentially get recompense for that. In a digital sense, that doesn't exist. So here in America, there's a physical you know set of you know governing structures that you know ensures that our society is based on trust, but then you have this digital overlay that is like the wild west and and there is no trust and so you have to kind of bring those two together and and in my view the way that you do is by is through encryption and giving people the power over their their data
1: so important and you think about exactly as you mentioned how much data facebook and amazon and all of them have on us that we we don't even understand how they have it and i mean google now makes it seem like we want you to have full idea of what data is being collected on you. There's no way they're giving us the full picture there. So, so figuring out a way to do exactly as you said, find that balance between, and bring the bring the trust back with the government, make it so that we're comfortable enough that we would be willing to share our data with the government. Uh, all interesting challenges that I have no doubt we'll be seeing as, as global trends continue to shift. That being said, I would like to ask, you've definitely delved into it already with 5G being a major component, Uh, what do you believe some of the largest global trends that we're going to see in the next 10, 15 years will be? And how can Americans that want to be winners in society as it changed gear up and be ready for these changes that will soon be coming?
2: Uh, That's really easy. And we're going to see deglobalization in terms of we're not going to have be integrated into these authoritarian regimes. So there's going to be there's going to be a bipolar system that that evolves there's going to be the authoritarian regimes and the democracies and the democracies are going to tend to be closer economically financially trade you know informationally, uh security wise and then the authoritarian regimes are going to be the same and then there's going to be a competition a very a very vigorous competition i don't believe it's going to lead to conflict uh in a, in a traditional sense but i think it is going to lead to competition economically and financially and elsewise. And so I think as that bipolar world begins to take shape, those companies and individuals that understand that and really uh, prepare for that and then take advantage of it, right, by, you know, investing in democracies, particularly investing in the United States. I think today, uh, if you look around uh, the United States, we have the lowest uh, energy rates in the uh, OECD. We have low corporate tax rates. Uh, you, You know, there's opportunity zones all over the country because these communities are hungry for, um, you know, uh, economic development. I think those companies and and quite frankly, the private equity model that's defined the globalized world has is really a wealth destroyer, not a wealth creator, because it's meant to, you know, leverage up these companies return, you know, enormous returns, outsized returns to shareholders, primarily institutional investors. uh, And that the reason for that is because of their their shrinking uh base of workers so what's happened is these pension funds have been squeezed because we'd had we've had you know declining year over year employment and and therefore they're not paying into these pension funds that were and so we have more and more retirees and so because those pension funds are are supposed to essentially take care of more and more retirees and they have less and less people coming in to replace them they have to get higher returns. So they've driven the private equity model that's basically rated wealth uh, in these companies. And, and oftentimes it leads to a closing of a factory or a retailer. When you close, those jobs go away, further shrink, uh, shrinking the pensioner's base and putting more pressure on the pension fund to, to be able to, to meet these retirements, forcing these private equity companies to figure out more and more ways to raid wealth from these systems. So We've, we've created this self-fulfilling kind of death spiral for our economy based on you know, our inability to rejuvenate our society. In other words, take dollars and invest them in our economy, not for stock repurchases, not for you know, you know, um, essentially buying stocks in, in Chinese companies, but really building factories and other things that produce value in communities that then drives jobs. That is how you do it. Now, you know, during, you know, in Nazi Germany, they used money, you know, from the state to do that. In China, in the Chinese Communist Party, they're doing the same thing, but they're using a lot of our money because we're allowing them to. And so you have to break that. And then you have to say, okay, you, you know, institutional investor, you pension fund, you university endowment, you need to invest in the communities where you live, not outside. Let's get our country growing again. Let's get our people employed again. And as you do, and as the working class begin to feel comfortable about things and their kids are going to school and they can own a home and they can live the American dream, then we're going to start to begin to rebalance our society. Definitely. We need to get back in touch with our roots. I think one of the, the silver linings
1: of the whole coronavirus thing is that we're starting to see the impact of having such a such an immense relationship with china and how codependent our economies have become the fact that we're getting medication from (laughs) this country that essentially like had the whole thing start it, it was very telling that maybe we need to bring this stuff back and maybe trump's america first approach really is essential
2: for the american people so it's very fascinating to hear well i mean right now it only goes so far i mean the things that i'm talking about yes we're beginning to decouple from china but this forcing of reindustrializing the country actually has to be, you know, undertaken by the government. Now he just started talking about that, you know, tax cuts, you know. But I think we need to move beyond just tax cuts for um, people or for companies to invest in the U.S. We have to make it harder and harder for them to invest abroad. He talked about tariffs, but then we need to also have incentives. And what are we talking about here? We're talking about access to capital for these companies, right? If you're gonna if you're a, a factory owner or if you're thinking about purchasing a factory, getting capital to build that factory is nearly impossible in this uh, in this market in the United States. And so the government actually can help that process. That's what we've done in, in other times before. you know what we've gotten into this habit here in terms of how we um, induce economic growth in the United States has been just, by expanding the money pool, right, by putting more money into the system. What's happened is that money goes into the banking system, and then that money flows into China. And so you actually have to have more of a hands-on approach from a government perspective to ensure that that capital is flowing into investments in the United States. I don't know if you remember the Obama administration, the Recovery Act you know, billion, you know, a trillion dollars went into the money supply, but then that money got loaned to China. So we didn't actually grow our economy. We ended up growing the Chinese economy. So if we want to grow the American economy, we have to have more of a hands-on approach. Now, people will say, well, you know, that's not, that's violating the the ideas of free trade and and kind of a market-based economy. Well, in essence, it is, unless you realize that the rest of the world doesn't look at it that way. There is a, a tendency for the rest of the world to actually invest in their own societies, and so and they and they and they make it an uneven playing field. We've been under the impression that we could get the rest of the world to play like us if we just you know made it you know an, an open playing field. And the answer is no, they're not going to. They're gonna they're gonna take care of their own citizens because that's mo- that's what a government does. They take care of their own citizens first. So. You know, we've had this debate in the United States about national security and economic policy, but we don't re- actually understand the economics that underpin it. And um, and so, you know, while we have the, the president has done some good things, there's still a lot left to be done. And I would say there's probably a lot in his administration that don't understand these fundamentals. So
1: true. One of the things that I found so interesting in reading, I, I recently read Newt Gingrich's book on uh, the Trump versus China, as he called it. The thing that I found so interesting was even... Even conservatives that are kind of fans of what Trump has done thus far really hit home that there's such a way to go and that we're we're kind of getting on the right track, but we really need to lock things down and double down on American business and the American people first and foremost. So it's uh, it's fascinating, and I, and I do hope that we see some of these changes that you, that you're recommending the <laughs> the American government take on. I guess uh, I guess this election will be very important as far as as what's next regarding our relationship with China.
2: It's critical. I consider this election to be really the difference between the establishment, you know, um, the Democratic candidate has been in, you know, DC for almost 50 years, Um, and they've presided over the destruction of the working class. And um, in, in both the Democratic side and the Republican side need to get back to figuring out how do we put these people back to work and reestablish some kind of ownership in this society for them that they can claim that they can. Because ultimately, the, when America is the best is when we're taking the oppressed of other societies who come here because they want a better life and they, and they embrace the values in our Constitution and in our society and they kind of reinvigorate who we are as a people you know, what happens is people get here, they get lazy, they forget about, you know, the, the, the you know, how difficult it is to have our kind of society. But there's millions of people around the world that want to come here. And when they come here, and they bring their oppression here, they bring their love of freedom, they bring their love of our society. And that kind of rejuvenates us and makes us stronger. And so, you know, legal immigration is, is the key fundamental um, piece of this society and it's not you know part of the problem we have been wanting to pull from you know kind of the elite class around the world um because we want you know professionals to come in because we think you know it's better if we just have a white collar economy those are not the oppressed they have come they're coming from a, a place of privilege where they're coming from so what you want are people that embrace the values of america that don't you know that that aren't into tribalism. And, and usually if you are coming from another society and you're part of the elite, you have a lot of tribal affiliations that you, then you bring into the United States and choose to recreate what we want are people that embrace our society, that embrace this idea of, you know, coming together with a lot of different races, a lot of different point of views and making one society based on the rule of law, based on, you know, the love of freedom. That is what we're trying to um, create. And I think, legal immigration for some of the working class and oppressed around the world is exactly what we need. And giving them the kind of environment where they can come in, they can raise a family, they can send their kids to school, and they can become part of the white car class, I think is a way that we create a healthy system, both econ- economically, socially, politically in this country that really is true to the fundamentals of what we, you know, what, what the experience that led to the creation of our constitution, our bill of rights, our declaration of independence. That, those are unique and they're based in a crucible of pain. And, and we need that pain to kind of rejuvenate us and, and, and make us stronger. It's,
1: it's a very powerful statement. Uh, my dad, my dad is personally a, uh, a house painter and one of his guys came from El Salvador legally quite a few years ago. And he, he drives like a super nice truck. He works like 60 hours a week. He has his own side business. And for me, that's like, that's the true embodiment of the american dream he came here he worked his butt off and now he's he's thriving he truly he's truly embraced becoming an american and it it's been incredibly inspiring for me to see so i think taking that on a more of a national scale and continuing to push something like that is super important and it brings up a great point about the balance in legal immigration and not only taking over taking people from intellectual spaces like doctors and things like that, but people that are working class citizens that want to come and contribute by being hardworking as so many of them truly are. Definitely. Very, very powerful stuff here. As we kind of, as we kind of come to a conclusion, I typically like to end things off. uh, If you could give one piece of life advice that's been tried and true throughout your career and through the different outlets that you've been a part of, what would
2: that be? Um, I like to I like to consider myself an etch a sketch. You know, um, no matter hard how hard the day was the day prior, no matter how downtrodden I may feel, no matter you know what trials and tribulations I went through, when I wake up in the morning, I, it's like I, it's a brand new day. It's a, a new opportunity to start again fresh, and uh, you know I embrace the day with you know all the vigor and uh, and I start over again and and try to you know go back at it. And so it's just having a joy for life. I mean caring about the things that you do, having integrity, you know, all of these things are important, but really it's about your outlook on, you know, having a a positive outlook, not, not letting all the things get to you so that every day you wake up with a smile on your face and you say, you know, what can I do to, 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 to create positivity today, I think is so important.
1: So true. Another great thing that I just want to make note of is the fact that it's refreshing to be chatting with someone who's based in DC and and integral in our our government that that is very forward thinking and open minded. It sounds like you're willing to have these conversations. It, oftentimes, people get kind of pigeonholed into their political party, but I think more often than not, speaking with people like you reminds me that most people do want to have conversations and are open to to different interpretations rather than just buying into. <laughs> oh, we have to listen to 100% of what Joe Biden's saying or 100% of what Donald Trump is saying. It's like, there's right and wrong on both sides and being able to acknowledge that is so important. So I commend you for that. Definitely. Thank you. Uh, well, as as we come to a conclusion, I typically like to give you just a second to, to shout out things that you may be working on, uh, obviously the book. So I'll give you a second to kind of give your uh, final graces
2: yeah you know uh, come and check out the book you can get the first chapter free on generalspaulding.com i'm on twitter uh, at uh, robert underscore spaulding i I do stuff on youtube i every thursday at 7 pm eastern time i'm live on twitter for 30 minutes just talking about the 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 uh, daily issues and i'll answer questions i encourage people to come on and ask me questions because you know i think it is very important that we interface and have dialogue and not have get into these stovepiped, you know, ideological religions. We need to we need to think.
1: The the power to think and the freedom to think as you will as an independent thinker is such a powerful component of what makes America one of, if not the greatest country in the world. So I can assure, the book is a great read, and I also uh, I love your Twitter feed. I was just watching your uh, <laughs> I was just watching your statements last night on the, the Democratic National Convention. Truly fascinating stuff. Well, Dr. Spaulding, it has been an absolute pleasure and it's, it's been great chatting with
0: you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in to episode nine with our guest today, General Robert Spaulding. Please join us on your favorite podcast platform that's YouTube included for the video version of the show. So that's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify as well. Don't forget to follow on Instagram and connect with Harrison on LinkedIn. Thank you guys so much for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next one.